isn't that what we want from student athletes? We want them to critically engage with the world. We want them to actually apply what they're learning inside the classroom. And so I feel like every time these athletes are big footed from, uh, from speaking their piece, you know, it, it actually hurts the educational mission. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher working in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Thank you for tuning in this time around. Jeff, before, before we get into it, I just want to acknowledge my my seniors. My seniors recently received word that they will have an in-person graduation ceremony at the Rose Bowl. Mm. Rose Bowl wow. Stadium, Jeff. Do you do you understand the significance of the Rose Bowl? <laughs> you know, uh, I do, Manuel. As a long college football fan, uh, the Rose Bowl has always been a special place. And I have still yet to actually be inside the Rose Bowl. Manuel. Really? So not Yeah, man. I've been I've I've walked around, you know, the outside of the stadium and the sort of park area and stuff around, but never actually been inside. I only live you know, a few miles away. So yeah, um, man. Yeah, I gotta make it, man. Those tickets though, man, it's uh it's not cheap going to a game at the Rose Bowl, man. Well Well, it's 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 not cheap if it's like the actual Rose Bowl game. But Jeff, you know, this is an education podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that the number one public university in the world. Um, <laughs> they play their football games at the Rose Bowl, Jeff, and that of course is UCLA and UCLA football tickets. They're not. They're not that expensive. Nah, There's, there there tends to be extra space there, but um, well, but, maybe know. they've maybe they've dropped the prices because when I when I first moved here, I tried to go to a game and it was like 125 bucks for for the nosebleeds, and I was oh, like, oh no, nah, you were looking I'm in not, the wrong sections, man. Nah, that, man. man. 10, 15 okay. bucks will get you there. Yeah, we'll okay. we'll we'll hit up a game this this uh, upcoming season, assuming everything's all clear and in person and all that. But you know, I did want to just point out that even though we are an education show, you know, we could we could talk about the sports here and there. You know, we could handle sports conversations. And Jeff, a, a unnamed source told me that today's guest actually um, knows a little bit about sports as well. Oh. Jeff, so so let's get into it. What's the what's on the agenda for this episode? Well, Manuel, I'm so excited because today we have an incredible guest coming on, and it is none other than Dave Zirin, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, sports editor for The Nation magazine, uh, a person who has carved out just a fascinating role for himself in the world of sports journalism, and uh, someone who writes about and comments on the intersections of sports, politics, and social justice. And so he's coming on today to help us kind of explore some of these issues as they pertain to the world of education. So, you know, high school sports, college sports, it's going to be really fascinating, man. He's a, um, just an interesting, interesting person um, in, in the field and someone who I think brings like a really unique perspective. So you definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, this is about to be a super dope conversation. Jeff, this actually reminds me, our previous episode, we talked about arts and music education. The episode before that, we had Kaya Brown on and we talked about STEM education. We have had previous episodes about social and emotional learning with David Adams. We've talked about math and social justice with Jose Wilson. Jeff, we really 
cover a lot of topics and those are just the seminar. That doesn't even include all the topics that we cover in the Do Now segment. Jeff, I really believe we are the dopest classroom in the podcasting space and we love our viewers and listeners for being part of this journey with us as we continue to learn and grow and expand the conversation around issues affecting our schools today. But up next though is today's Do Now where we'll look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today it's time for a pop quiz, okay? Thinking caps on, and yep. uh, folks, folks better get ready to drop some answers. Pop quiz. We love tests during a pandemic, Jeff. I know you do. Oh, man. See, see. I, Mr. See, Mr. Testing Industrial why? Complex. Why the hate, Manuel? Can't, can't this be a show about love and, and respect for our colleagues and friends here on All the Above, Manuel? I don't, I don't, you know, you just come out the gate, just fire it, man. It's fun, man. It's fun. All right. Well, I have the first quiz question for you, Jeff. Uh, let's see if you could get this one right. Um, here's the question. Why do you think so many blacks kill other blacks? Mm. Mm. You know... <laughs> I love how you just use the term blacks um, in that answer. Uh, or before the I, blacks, before we I can offer go with the Because it, the only thing that could make it better is if it was prefaced with the blacks. Hey, there we go. Or, or the blacks, or a black. Uh, to just complete the objectification of both an entire group of people and this individual. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know, man, well, I'm going to say, in character here, I'm going to say, uh, because playing the race card is what we do. Wow. Wow. That's interesting, Jeff. That's really interesting. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that this question here was an actual question on an assignment, a high school assignment, an actual high school assignment that was assigned to actual high school students. So this is not us uh, coming up with some absurd racist question. This is, this is from an actual assignment. And that's what we're going to talk about here for our first do now story, Jeff. This is um quite ridiculous, quite ridiculous, but not quite. not too surprising though. Um, so let's get into it. So uh, we caught wind of this story thanks to some um, reporting and commentary from Michael Harriet for The Root, and his article was based on a story that he saw in the Skioto Skioto, I believe I'm saying that right. I don't know Skioto Valley Guardian. And their story was based on a post on Facebook by Maddie Elliott. So that is us uh, citing our sources here, which um, which is important here because um, this this assignment that we're talking about is based on a video that is famous for not citing sources and just talking. Um, and that's an important caveat to make here. So all right, so let's let's get into the story. Um, a history teacher at Waverly High School in Ohio. Uh, this teacher's name is Donald Martin, and he's under fire for creating an assignment for his students based on a far right-wing video from PragerU called The Top Five Issues Facing Black Americans. The assignment required students to watch the video and answer questions about the um, history of African-Americans. And the assignment itself was titled, quote, Five Issues Facing Blacks Discussion and Review Questions. And this assignment included questions such as, and again, these <laughs> direct quote here, um, 
Why do you think that churches, parents, and schools perpetuate this victim mentality? Considering the recent obvious success of blacks, such as Barack Obama being elected to the presidency twice, why do you think that many young blacks so readily accept the victim mentality? Why do you think so many blacks are killing other blacks? And another question that asked, why do you think or what do you think motivates many blacks to make excuses? Now, a picture of this assignment was posted on social media. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you see it right now. And um, a student posted it after becoming concerned with the questions. And uh, the student called it inflammatory and insensitive. Parents who were concerned said they voiced their complaints to the district's superintendent, who reportedly told them that the assignment was handed out in error by a substitute teacher. Now, y'all may recall that last fall, we mentioned a similar story about a 10th grade history class at Maumee High School, which is also in Ohio. What's, what's going on in these history classes in Ohio? And in that case, students were assigned a series of PragerU videos with titles such as Build the Wall, Why the Right Was Right, and The Left Ruins Everything. Students in that case had to answer questions about the videos most important message, quote unquote, there. And um, this is all separate from PragerU's latest venture, which is called PragerU Educators and Parents, or PrEP, which launched last year and is an online learning program directly aimed at parents and educators. So, Jeff, um, interesting story here. I wonder um, how you feel about this, this assignment. Is this something that you um, assigned in your history classes back in the day when you were in the classroom? No. And how I feel about it is it's trash. And how I really feel about it is it's complete horse trash. <laughs> Period. End of sentence. Next next story. Horse <laughs> trash. Uh, <laughs> this this is so, so first of all, I got to say shout out to Michael Harriet uh, at The Root because, you know, The Root is such a fun news source to engage with because it feels like you're talking with the homies when like when you read the article because they got jokes and like yeah. you know in, inside jokes to weave into other jokes like it's it's a brilliant brilliant um sort of format for commentary and reporting at the same time so props to michael harriet in the root and i will say um Yes, PragerU is, Manuel, um, is a no hyperbole whatsoever, is a white supremacist mythology um, propaganda machine that, you know, uh, in, in oh so fitting a way, uh, is neither a university nor does it offer um, thought or ideas or content that is particularly reliant upon scholarship in any way, shape or form. It's simply white supremacist mythology dressed up in sort of a catchy, a catchy form, which both makes it ridiculous and something you shouldn't pay attention to at all, and also makes it extremely dangerous because it has the veneer of like, um, you know, it almost has the veneer of like brain pop videos or like, you know, other kinds of stuff that people bring into class because having video content that explains big ideas in a short, you know, four minute clip and are kind of fun and engaging is a nice tool to use in learning, right? Um, and so it's extremely dangerous, I would argue. And this is just another example of that because it contains just a just overtly objectifying, denigrating, pathologizing uh, content that is racist, that is sexist, that is uh, supports the most virulent 
predatory forms of capitalism that we have, um, and that places the blame for social ills on the very people being victimized by our systems of, of societal oppression. Um, so that they also have, uh, you know, black people, that they have a black, uh, <laughs> which is an actual phrase used in this actual <laughs> ridiculous video, um, as the mouthpiece, uh, Candace Owens, I think is probably their most famous black, uh, who, <laughs> who comments, um, for them, but I forget this guy's name, um, who, you know, who actually made this video, uh, and I don't want to give him props anyways. But uh, it's extremely dangerous, man. And, there, you know, there's always been Uncle Tom's uh, in the history of, uh, you know, of oppression in this country. And no surprise that we would have folks playing that role here for money. But I, you know, man, well, it is both funny and it is both not at all funny um, to see this kind of content making its way into school and to see this sort of... Um, pasting of a of the 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 sort of skin of respectability on these uh just evil ideas um and oppressive ideas uh, making their way into school so that's my take man well um mic yeah. drop yeah so i mean from an educator perspective i guess my concern is that probably since this is the second time we've reported on a story like this just in the last you know few months probably there are a lot of teachers out there using this PragerU stuff or or things that are similar to it. And a lot of them probably think that what they're doing is no different than a, a teacher using the 1619 Project, for example. And there are certainly people listening to our show now who might be administrators or, or district leads who, you know, I think have to have in mind what they're going to do if they find out that a teacher in their own school or their own district has similar assignments. We only know about this assignment because a, a student posted it to Facebook, a student that recently graduated from this school and, and saw it for the racist BS that it was and posted it and basically put this teacher on blast. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know about this assignment. So how many other teachers are having students watch these videos with like not a critical lens, but just like, hey, look at this video. Isn't this stuff right? Tell me why it's right. Cause that's basically what these questions are asking. This the, you know, the the academic integrity of this assignment is is trash, obviously. And for any teacher out there or educator who's thinking, well, you know, this is this is uh multiple perspectives, you know, we could use a piece of the 1619 project and we could use some stuff from these videos. That multiple perspective stuff um, doesn't doesn't fit in this case because these these videos and videos like them aren't using the the strong historical uh, backbone of research that something like the 1619 Project does. I mean, the 1619 Project won all kinds of awards for its research and for the academic integrity of it. These videos are, there's none of that in there. Like, it's just talk. It's just charlatans talking about their own political ideas. And in this case, a teacher saying, watch this stuff and tell me why they're right, because that's basically what um, these questions are asking. So it's, it's trash. And multiple multiple perspectives is a phrase that I'm hearing more and more as people talk about the use of like um, ethnic studies courses and this and that and folks saying like, oh, we need to have multiple perspectives in there because otherwise this stuff is some left-leaning, um, you know, um, indoctrination. And it's like, well, that multiple perspectives idea, um, it really lends itself to allowing a lot of dehumanizing and a lot of... Um, bigoted ideas into the classroom. And, and we don't do that in other arenas. Like when we teach about the history of World War II and, and Nazis and the Holocaust, we don't 
allow for multiple perspectives on, on, you know, whether or not the Holocaust was as bad as it was. Like, we don't because that's horribly offensive when it comes to things that are dehumanizing, when it comes to debates over one's value. Like, there, there's no place for this two sides nonsense. So this teacher here didn't even bother with the two sides argument. But I could see somebody out there saying like, okay, yeah, I, I showed this PragerU video, but I also had students, you know, read this one article that, you know, showed, and you know, I could see folks out there probably trying to claim, like, I just want to expose students to multiple perspectives. But this here is a perspective that is not, that has no place in the classroom. I mean, the video itself, the guy in the video talks about how many black people were lynched and he compares those numbers to how many black people are killed in violent crimes um, as a way of making a point that like more black people die in, in daily violent crimes than they did in lynching. It's like, wait, are we both sides arguing about lynching and whether or not lynching yes. is as bad <laughs> as it was? Because like, oh, look yeah. at these other numbers. It's not so bad. It goes back to like the whole flu thing versus the coronavirus. It's just like, yo, this is not this is not where we're trying to lead students. This is trash. It belongs nowhere, let alone the classroom. Just complete garbage, man. Yeah, 100% you're right about that, Manuel. And it, it is, I'm so glad you framed that in, in the like moral clarity perspective, right? Because there, there is not the, the opposite, um, or I shouldn't say the opposite, right? Like the legitimate alternate perspective um, to a debate is not, you know, one that goes from, hey, how can we fight for the liberation of black people? And then the other side being like, hey, how can we enslave and dehumanize black people? Those are not two valid perspectives deba right. <laughs> debating about an issue, right? The, the type of debate that these right-wing folks um, and these white supremacists claim to value would be something historically more akin to like a sort of Booker T. Washington versus W.E.B. Du Bois type of debate, right? Which, you know, regardless of how you feel about that juxtaposition, uh, ostensibly involved two people who had the same goal, right? Which is how do we support the liberation and development of our people coming out of a repressive period of, you know, or centuries of, re of repression, right? Um, but with a shared goal and a shared sense of value over the worth of our people. These folks do not value us. They want to dehumanize us. And that's why these ideas need to be stricken from, from being used in school because they are hurtful, violent, evil ideology. They represent a hurtful, violent, evil ideology. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to quickly shout out the the student who originally posted this to Facebook and the parents who saw the post and, you know, called up the superintendent and all that. I mean, this school is a school that is overwhelmingly white. It's a town that's overwhelmingly white and has a, as Michael Harriet pointed out in his article, has a rich history of, of being a sundown town. And um, I think it just shows that going back to something that we talked about with Joe Trust, that um, we are seeing a lot of hope and a lot of promise in, in white folks seeing the problems and white folks rightfully calling out the uh, systemic racism and in this case, overt uh, racist curriculum that, that is being offered to their kids. Like this is, um, this is, I think, like maybe the silver lining here showing that this all white, almost all white school um, wasn't having it and put this teacher on blast. And, you know, who knows if the teacher is still working at this at the time of this filming. Um, I don't really know the, the, the state of the teacher's employment, but um, I'm very, I, I feel good about the fact that this, this school put them on blast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Jeff, what's the next question for today's pop quiz? All right, man. Well, next question is what's hot, swampy, and possibly full of corruption? 
that sounds like a terrible place wherever it is. That sounds like some <laughs> really, really terrible place that I do not want to go. I'm picturing mosquitoes and- um, Oh, there's I'll, mosquitoes. I, the first image that comes to mind is a season one of True Detective um, out down ah. there. And I think they were in Louisiana. That's what comes mm. to mind. So I don't know if we're talking about True Detective here or, um, or anything <laughs> like that. So yeah, whatever this place is, does not sound like a place I want to be at, but yeah. What do you got? Well, uh, you're not far off the mark, Manuel. The correct answer today is Florida. Um, and really just all of Florida. But in, in this particular case, <laughs> in this particular case, uh, possibly the um, the school district leadership in Broward County, Florida. Um, so let's let's get into this story here, Manuel. Um, this comes to us um, from uh, some good reporting from Mark Kieleberger, uh, Kieleber, I hope I'm saying that right, my apologies, uh, writing in the 74. Um, and uh, he writes that Robert Runcie, the school superintendent in Broward County, Florida, which is the nation's sixth largest school district, was arrested on April 20th on felony charges related to the district's uh, sec security actions in the lead up to the infamous 2018 school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Runcy, who is a black man, was arrested by Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents and charged with perjury. Also arrested was Broward County School Board General Counsel Barbara Myrick, who is 72, who was also charged uh, with felony unlawful disclosure of statewide grand jury proceedings. The indictment against Muncie alleges that he gave false statements to the grand jury as it was investigating whether the district was following school safety laws whether officials committed fraud by accepting state school funds while, quote, knowingly failing to act, unquote, and whether officials committed fraud by mismanaging school safety funds and whether educators underreported, quote, incidents of criminal, criminal activity to the Department of Education, unquote. Critics looking for accountability from the district leadership point to an $800 million bond program, which was approved way back in 2014, to update school buildings, including security upgrades. As of 2019, 97% of, of the district schools were still waiting for repairs, according to the South Florida Sun Sentinel. The promises had not been kept, said Ryan Petty, who is a parent of a 14-year-old killed in the attack, who has also served on the State Board of Education since last year. The killer walked through an open gate, which should have been locked, through an open door, which should have been locked, and then began to indiscriminately kill students and staff at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, all of which was preventable. Now, Runcie's lawyers said their client will plead not guilty and called it a sad day when politics become more important than the interests of our students. Um, now, Manuel, this is a fascinating story. There, there is not, as I have seen, <laughs> actually a lot of substantive information out there about, you know, what actually really happened here. So I'm sure there's still a lot more detail to come. But this is wild. A school superintendent being arrested uh, in, you know, ostensibly uh, as, a, as a piece of accountability for a, a mass shooting at a school site. What say you? Yeah, that is pretty wild. I was really surprised to see this. I, I, did, I didn't realize that um, folks were looking at him as potentially being criminally liable for anything that happened that day. Um, what happened that day was a failure on multiple levels, multiple levels. And I, you know, if the superintendent's 
held up some money that was meant for safety um, uh, safety elements of the school. If, if the superintendent held up some of the money that was meant to go towards school safety, that's a problem. If the superintendent didn't give truthful answers during the grand jury investigation, I think that is part of the allegations here. That also is a problem and there should be accountabil accountability. But I think, unfortunately, we've had enough mass shootings and enough school shootings in our history to know um, locked doors are not the solution. Um, locked gates are not the solution. Um, I think we know now that when it comes to a monster wanting to inflict damage, if that monster has their hands on a gun, um, they are going to find a way to inflict damage. What we have to do is prevent that context from ever becoming a reality in terms of the guns in folks' hands and just all the all the root causes of this sort of violence in our society in the in the first place. Because, I mean, so I mean, if the if the doors and gates were locked and all that, I mean, I don't know too much about the shooter in this case, but I could imagine he'd find some other way to get around that and get to get to folks. You know what? Like just locking the door is going to make it so that there's never you know a, another shooting. That's, I mean, that's that's pretty ridiculous. Um, I don't. I don't know. It's just such a sad, sad story. I'm. I'm not. I'm never against holding officials accountable. And in this case, if the superintendent had any role to play in something that wasn't done right, hold them accountable. But if there weren't, let's say, let's say if there weren't officers on campus, we would say, oh, there should have been an officer on duty that could have stopped it. But you know, we did have an officer on duty, and that officer didn't do what they were supposed to do, and that person also is has been, I think, criminally charged. So, like every every protection that we could think of, like you know, gates, locks, officers on campus, all these things, like we could just keep piling on. But until we address the root causes of school shootings, like the shooters are just going to find a way. I, I don't remember what stand-up comedian it was, but um, it might have been Dave Chappelle. I don't know. Somebody um, joked about how like when we when you have lockdown drills, like potential shooters, they're in those drills too. Like they know the procedures, they know what happens, you know? So this isn't, no, no matter what we do around security apparatus, there's still gonna be a threat of violence. And I feel for obviously everybody who was affected by that in other shootings, um, we gotta keep the guns out of, out of folks' hands in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I fully agree with you on that, Manuel. And I, I think to me, this is obviously a tragedy. Obviously, the idea that there should be some accountability um, for this tragedy, of course, makes sense. I actually, I mean, unless there is a trove of details here that we're that have just not been reported on, right, about like gross negligence uh, in terms of the school district's behavior, I'm not seeing how the superintendent is the right target for for accountability here, right? Like a child got a hold of a gun that a child should not have been able to get a hold of, that no one in our society, in my opinion, should be able to have a weapon of war and walked into a school where that child belonged, right? So it's not like he broke in and, and like busted the security system, right? Like schools are porous. <laughs> entities like that they just are right like thousands of people come and go from a school campus every day and you don't want a school campus to feel like an armored compound where you're either a prisoner on the inside or you know some kind of exile on the outside right so i think you know with all due respect to the folks who are the victims of this tragedy it strikes me from this perspective 
as, uh, as an attempt to find accountability in the wrong place. I also, frankly, am just um, like the racial politics behind this are a question for me. This is, you know, this is Florida. This is America. This is a black, you know, a political official who's being held, you know, quote unquote, held accountable by largely a group of, of white parent activists. So, I, you know, there are questions for me about what the motivations are behind this. And the reality is, frankly, you know who's responsible for mass shootings in this country, Manuel, and where we need accountability to really go is on gun manufacturers and on politicians who refuse to pass common sense gun safety legislation, right? That's what would have stopped this killing. And, you know, so we can get mad at whoever we want, but until we go there, that's the root cause here. And I'm sorry, it's not the superintendent's fault that Florida has terrible gun laws. So, yeah, that's my take. Yeah, I hear you on that. I hear you on that. Well, Jeff, this do now, you know, one story is about overt racism. The other story about school shootings. I mean, can we can we talk about something simple, something that's not tied at all to um politics or race or power. Let's just talk about sports. Let's talk about sports. All right. Uh, so we have a seminar coming up and we have Dave Zirin in the building. And um, Jeff, I am correct, right? Sports has nothing to do with racism or power or politics, correct? Absolutely nothing. Um, I believe the quote you're looking for, Manuel, is shut up and dribble. Um, I think that's, that's, right. the, that's what you're supposed to say in this moment. Yeah. That's right. Shut yeah. up and dribble. Let's see what's up with the intersections between sports and education and social justice. That's coming up next in today's seminar. Stay tuned. Hey, OTA family. This is Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. Just checking in with you for a second, just to reiterate the importance of leaving us a little review if you are listening to the podcast on the go. Those reviews really go a long way. Five stars would be very much appreciated. If you could write something up, we would love that too. And if you do, I mean, send us a screenshot of it. We'll send you back a all of the above sticker for your laptop or notebook or whatever you wanna use it for. All right, folks, we love y'all. Let's get back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We, ex we are so excited to have you with us today, and we have an incredible guest here to help us explore a fascinating topic, the intersections of sports, politics, education, and social justice. And it is none other than Dave Zirin, who is here with us today. Welcome, Dave, to All the Above. Man, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, well, let me tell you a little bit about our guest. He uh, has a fascinating, fascinating role to play in the world of sports writing. Dave Zirin is a writer, editor, sports journalist, and podcaster who has made a career of reporting on the intersections of sports, culture, politics, and social justice. He is the author of 10 books on the politics of sports, including A People's History of Sports in the United States, and his latest, which is due out this September, called The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee and Changing the World. He has been a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and my personal favorite daily news broadcast, Democracy Now! Dave is the sports editor at The Nation, the first sports writer at The Nation in its 150 plus year history, and hosts their Edge of Sports podcast. Dave is a graduate of McAllister College, which of course is in my hometown of St. Paul, Minnesota, and wow. is originally from New York City. 
Dave Zirin, uh, thanks so much for making time to be with us today. Manuel, I'm going to kick it to you for our first question. Yeah. All right. We got Dave Zirin in the building. Thank you so much for being here. And we want to start with perhaps one of the more visible ways that sports and education policy and social justice interact, which is through the implementation of, of Title IX, which, you know, it, it prohibits discrimination based on sex in K-12 schools and in higher education. And it's supposed to ensure equal treatment of men's and women's athletics. Now, spoiler alert, there are still disparities between men's and women's athletics. We saw that very clearly at the beginning of March Madness this year when Sedona Prince of the University of Oregon posted that video showing the disparities in the strength training facilities that the women's tournament received versus the men's tournament. So we're wondering, um, where do you see some of these disparities between how we treat men's athletics and women's athletics, where do you see some of these disparities manifesting at the, the college level or even the high school level? Well, let's talk about the positives first. And first and foremost, it's great to be here. Uh, the positive is that Title IX, which was uh, passed into law in 1972, signed into law by Richard Nixon, although I like to say it was really signed into law by the women's movement, uh, it actually does not even mention athletics in the actual law. In the law that's passed, sports is not mentioned, and yet we so closely associate Title IX with the issue of sports, and particularly sports equity. And I would argue that you would be hard-pressed to find a piece of legislation that has had more of an effect on more people's lives than Title IX. Uh, currently, the numbers are roughly between one out of two and one out of three young girls play some form of organized sports. Before Title IX was passed, that number was one out of 29. And young girls who play sports, the educational advantages of it are, are manifest and, uh, and well studied. Uh, people can look it up at the Women's Sports Foundation. It's a huge difference in the life of a young person and a young girl to play organized sports. So you're talking about legislation that literally has affected in the positive tens of millions of people in this country. And now that we're several generations past Title IX, you're starting to see something that I think has been long overdue, which relates to your question, and that's the pushing for full implementation of Title IX, an actual equity between men's and women's facilities in this country, but more specifically for the purposes of this discussion, sports. Now, you mentioned the scandal that erupted this year uh, when the disparities were really seen between the women's tournament and the men's tournament. And through that, it was it was revealed that inside the NCAA, the organization that oversees the big basketball tournaments, uh, the head of women's basketball doesn't even report directly to the head of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, who, by the way, makes over four million dollars a year in this nonprofit. Uh, it's instead they report to the men's basketball head and then the men's basketball head reports to Mark Emmert. So even inside the NCAA, I shouldn't say even inside, but inside the NCAA, the amount of systemic institutionalized sexism is very real. And I would argue that it's the sexism that blunts the ability of the NCAA not only to practice equity when it comes to Title IX, but it also blunts their ability to see women's sports for the growth potential that it actually has, for the financial potential that it actually has. And that hurts all women at all levels in all sports, because you could see women's college basketball being the engine 
that drives the train of women's sports um, in terms of the amount of Instagram follows of women basketball players, uh, social media imprint. I mean, it actually far outpaces men's sports. And so there's all this potential there to use it to actually fund women's sports across the board in a way that's far more equitable than what we see now, but we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it. And the only way we're gonna see it, I would argue is a greater movement for women's rights in this country. Notice I didn't say women's sports, I said women's rights, because one of the things you notice historically, and I was a history major, I, I admit, um, one of the things you see historically is that women's sports take a step forward when there are movements off the field. And when there aren't women's movements off the field, it tends to not be felt as strongly inside the world of sports. I think what's so exciting about 2021 is you see people like Megan Rapino, who don't differentiate between fighting for the rights of women, fighting for equity inside or outside women's sports. And I think when you have that kind of crossover, it's very powerful. And the other powerful element, and I'm sorry to go on so long, is social media. I mean, the fact that what you described was able to be exposed so quickly uh, because of social media, I always believe that evil flourishes in shadows. And so the more light you shine upon this, the more difficult it is for the NCAA to run away from how they are implementing Title IX. Yeah, so, so many important points there, Dave. And, um, you know, I'm still, as a former um, NCAA athlete myself, um, I'm still stuck on the fact that Mark Emmert is making $4 million a year as ostensibly the head of a nonprofit. Um, but that point aside, um, you also mentioned a few names there like Megan Rapino, And I think uh, in recent times, especially over the last year, but really in, in, in the last several years, we've seen, I think, a, a rise or an escalation of athletes, professional athletes, but even college or high school athletes using their platform to engage in political speech. And whether that has been the, you know, the sort of Megan Rapinos of the world, um, you know, taking a knee in solidarity, whether that's been, uh, you know, WNBA players walking off the court or, uh, or actually organizing to oust a, a U.S. senator, um, whether that's been even leagues, you know, sort of getting in on the conversation and putting things on the, on the courts or in the end zone. Um, you know, we, we've seen this kind of rise of political speech um, as a part of sports and athletes using that platform. Um, a question that I think we're, we're exploring is that ostensibly athletes have um, First Amendment rights, and this is in, in schools, right? So in high schools and in college. To, uh, to engage in political speech and to not be compelled to engage in political speech like standing for the anthem. Uh, but of course, in the real world, there may be some constraints on that, particularly in more conservative parts of the country or in more conservative sports settings like, say, football. So I'm wondering from your perspective, what should school systems or university systems or even you know, uh, college conferences be doing to protect the rights, uh, the First Amendment speech rights of student athletes? Yeah, and we, we should add that at, at private institutions, students who speak out are much more vulnerable to punishment, to being expelled from the team. And I would argue that's just as un unconstitutional as in public systems, but they're able to get away with it a lot more in the private school system, which is uh, abhorrent and pretty common. Um, and you've even seen athletes so brave that they've taken a knee 
when they've been in very Christian schools, like hyper-religious evangelical institutions, and they've been punished terribly. I mean, I think that they're, what we're not seeing that we need to see is what the United States Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee has done. And I can't believe I'm complimenting them because I have so many criticisms of them. But in this case, they deserve credit for um, passing their own bylaws that said, we support athletes who use their platform to make political statements for the simple reason that uh, these platforms have been created in large part by the athletes themselves. And this is their moment. And if they choose to take that moment to say or do something political, well, they're actually part of a tradition in this country that goes way back. Uh, it goes back to the 1950s and a track star named Roseanne Robinson um, who wouldn't stand for the anthem in protest of the buildup around nuclear war and the Cold War. And uh, she was punished for that. She later was uh, underwent a hunger strike in prison in protest of nuclear um, proliferation. So this is a very serious activist we're talking about. But just, the point is just we're talking, it doesn't start with Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, and arguably the most famous image in sports history. It goes back to the 1950s. And throughout, it's been contested, a contested space. And it obviously still is a contested space. I mentioned the United States Olympic Committee. Well, the International Olympic Committee just came down with a Bigfoot legislation against, it was very aimed at the USOPC. Uh, and it was saying, no, you're, there will be no political speech at the Olympics. There will be no political speech allowed. Of course, the Olympics themselves are a political project. <laughs> Um, the, where the Olympics go is political, the ceremony is political, the nationalism is political, the invariable militarism is political. So the Olympics are rife with politics and always have been for everybody except the athletes whose silence is demanded. And so I think that educational systems need to think very carefully about why they shouldn't crack down on these athletes, because isn't that what we want, quote unquote, student athletes to do? And even the phrase student athlete, deeply problematic. It's a legal term that was created to deny the wife of a football player who died on the field workers' compensation. Um, so it was actually derived by the NCAA as a way to say, no, you know, she's not entitled to workers' comp, Your Honor, because uh, her husband was not a worker for the campus. He was a student athlete. And therefore, we're protected from liability. So I don't even like the phrase, but to, to, but isn't that what we want from student athletes? We want them to critically engage with the world. We want them to actually apply what they're learning inside the classroom. And so I feel like every time these athletes are bigfooted from uh, from speaking their piece, you know, it, it actually hurts the educational mission. And I'm not saying that these athletes should speak out and then we all applaud because people can speak out for things that we don't necessarily agree with, you know? I mean, we're familiar with the knee as a protest against police violence and racial inequity, but you could foresee somebody taking a knee around an issue that we would find very offensive, like taking a knee in favor of the January 6th right-wing Confederate insurrection. Like, I'm just saying, like, in theory, one can imagine uh, that space being used for ideas that I certainly find very offensive. But what I always say is like, look, 
you know, freedom of speech is, is not freedom of consequences. Like if someone does that, we argue against it. We combat it. We say why we disagree with that. We, I would say that it's a bastardization of what people like Roseanne Robinson, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos stood for. But that's very different than saying you're not allowed to speak at all, which to me should not be the mission of an educational institution. Yeah, and, and you mentioned there that, that term student athlete. Now, I myself as a high school history teacher, I have had plenty of students graduate from high school and go on to play football for USC or University of Texas or UCLA and, and any number of sports and, and other uh, institutions as well. And part of me always wonders whether or not some of these students might be getting a bit of a raw deal when I look at what they are physically doing for the program and the fact that they're not being compensated. And there's a lot of discussion, of course, uh, ongoing debate about uh, financial compensation for student athletes or uh, student athletes' rights to profit from their name, image, and likeness. So we're wondering, where do you stand on that particular issue? And what do you think the, the casual sports fan maybe doesn't understand about this issue of financial compensation for student athletes? I think the casual sports fan, I'll start there, doesn't understand the sheer flood of money that's in the system at this point. I mean, people have criticized the fact that our higher, that our inst institutions of higher learning and higher education have been the minor leagues for sports like basketball and football. People have criticized that since the 1930s. I mean, Upton Sinclair wrote about it. Even W.B. Du Bois made some brief asides about the priorities of a campus uh, with funds going more to what, what appalled him was funds going more to football than, than English and classics and what he saw a university being there actually to do. Um, so the criticism isn't new. What's new is the money. Uh, Dabo Sweeney, who's the head football coach at Clemson, makes with bonuses about $10 million a year. When Clemson won um, the national championship in 1981, so about 40 years ago, their head coach, Danny Ford, made 50 grand. Now, how does a job that paid you 50 grand 40 years ago, uh, if you adjust that for infl inflation, I looked it up, that's like a $150,000, $200,000 a year job today. How does that become a $10 million a year job? That's because of cable money more than anything else. And so we're talking billions of dollars in cable deals have gone into higher education. And yet that money doesn't see the people whose blood, sweat and tears are the reason we actually tune in and watch. So that's, the, I think, the big change generationally. And that's also why a lot of college athletes have woken up to this because they see their head coaches making 10 mil. They see the assistant coaches making two mil. They see their strength coaches making a million dollars a year. And they said this, this is unfair. You know, we're the ones doing this. We're the ones signing autographs. It's our jerseys that are being sold in the stadiums. I mean, in some schools, you could even get uh, commemorative credit cards to use at the stadium that has the images of players on them. But they have no control, as you said, of their name, image, and likeness. And you're in California, which is the epicenter of where that's really being pushed to change right now. But it's so interesting to me that whether you're talking about the Supreme Court or whether you're talking about governors of very different political bents, like say Governor Newsom in California or Ron DeSantis in Florida, they actually have found common ground on this issue and looked at this, like a lot of people look at it who aren't people like myself who study it 
you know, they've got other things to worry about. They think it's just sports, who cares? But then they look at it for the first time and it's like finding spoiled food in the trunk of your car or something like that. You know, they, they, they look at it and they're like, oh, what kind of system is this? And so people like Brett Kavanaugh, who I find repellent, was absolutely appalled. Clarence Thomas was appalled when he looked at this. And Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom, there's commonality there. And I think the name, image, and likeness issue, uh, I believe a school has now adopted it. I think it's New Mexico. I wish I had that more. I, that just in the last couple of days has said, yes, our athletes will have control over their aim, name, image, and likeness and let the NCAA try to stop us. You know, that to me is just a given. I mean, my goodness, if I was walking on my college campus, McAllister, you know, as you mentioned, and someone came up to me and said, hey, uh, you, you have wonderful hands. Will you be a hand model for our ad? I could say yes without losing my financial aid. You know, I think I took that from Seinfeld or something. Being a hand model. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but if you look at but for the college athletes, they, they can't control their name, image and likeness. Now, the argument against it is that people and I think this argument is so weak is that people say, well, the big schools with the big um, budgets, like say a University of Alabama, well, they'll just promise players all kind of name, image, and likeness deals at like the local car dealership, and that'll create great inequality among the programs. And to that, I just gotta say, there already is great inequality among the programs. That's why we're talking about Alabama in the first place. You know, and, and it's like people go to Alabama not because they, they love the, the English department at Alabama, although I'm sure it's fine. They go there precisely because Alabama is the best pipeline to the NFL. Alabama has the best strength program. Alabama's locker room, which I've been in, looks nicer than pro locker rooms. And one of the reasons why everything looks so incredible at Alabama is because they actually have all this excess money from what they're bringing in, which should be going to the players, but they just put it into facilities instead. So already you have deep, deep inequality baked into the program. It's not a, a, a social democratic state. You know, it's, it's hyper, hyper capitalism for everybody except the players themselves who have to live in poverty. Um, so that's where I stand on that. I mean, you gotta treat the players like the campus employees that they are. Uh, to do otherwise uh, is an injustice. And that's why the player, and again, I think we're going to go back to this in several answers of the question, but I think social media has been a difference maker in this. And I have all kinds of problems with social media. I don't want to sound like I own stock in Twitter or anything, but the fact that players can actually post things like not NCAA property or can post things like the inequity that, about Title IX that we talked about, it makes a huge difference in terms of public pressure on the NCAA to do right by these players themselves. And that's also why a lot of coaches, you mentioned about your students and what their lives are gonna be like, uh, social media is banned on a lot of, of a lot of these NCAA teams. Like they're not allowed to post. And so you have to ask yourself, one, why aren't they allowed? And two, how are we talking about them as being student athletes if there's a whole different set of rules for them? And you know, the, 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 the curtain really got pulled back on this during the pandemic because you had schools across the country, big state schools, where the students were staying at home and yet the football team was deemed essential workers. Now, if that doesn't give the game away, I don't know what does because they didn't call them essential student athletes. Mm. Yeah. Man, uh, so much that you're making me think about there, Dave, including a, a vivid flashback. I was a football player in college, and I played at Dartmouth, you know, not exactly a, 
uh, front page news uh, kind of football program in most of the country. But I remember sitting in the dorms and playing and the, the NCAA football, um, EA Sports video game, whatever that was called. It was like NCAA 2001 or something. And playing with myself <laughs> as a player in that game and you know having this interesting thought of like i'm sure no one bought the game to you know to play me but for the other you know big time athletes of of that era right like be sitting there playing yourself in a video game with this multi-billion dollar company that's making money off of it and you're seeing none of that uh is is a fascinating um experience to say the least um so Switching gears just, just say, a, that that's what actually led to the end of the EA sports relationship with the NCAA, which is I heard is going to come back once they start with name, image and likeness. But it all started with former UCLA great Ed O'Bannon, you know, being in a friend's house and noticing that this friend's kid was playing him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, down to like his bald head and sort of loping walk. And I mean, it, it was him. Yeah. And, that, and that that's and that started a lawsuit, which has played a, an essential role in leading us to us even having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, switching gears just a little bit, um, I you know I grew up in uh, in Minnesota, as I said, and was a huge Vikings fan as a kid. And um, so I'm going to use an example uh, from the state of Minnesota for for this next question. So a few years back, the Minnesota Vikings open a you know a monument of a new stadium. Right, the stadium costs about a billion dollars to build in total, and about half of that cost came from state and local funds, right? So about 350 million came from the state and about 150 million came from the city. Now, since that time, in the city of Minneapolis, the public school system has pretty routinely run annual budget deficits that have hovered somewhere between 20 and $30 million a year that have required you know, early retirements or layoffs or program cuts. Um, those sorts of things to, uh, you know, to, to close those budget gaps. I'm wondering, uh, Dave, we live in a society where every, you know, large metro area in the country is home to at least one, if not multiple, giant palaces for professional sports teams. Um, and frankly, also giant palaces for, you know, big time college programs um, in different sports. And I'm wondering if you can maybe help us explore some connections between the type of public investment we are seeing in these palaces for sports teams at the same time as we are seeing, you know, uh, divestment from or, you know, serious financial struggles with things like public education and local public services. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing about this for a long time and I see it really starting in the early 1990s. Uh, with the building of Oriole Park at Camden Yards uh, in, in Baltimore. I mean, it showed itself to be such a moneymaker that uh, city after city, it becomes a substitute for anything resembling an urban policy. But then you have to ask yourself, moneymaker for who? And is this even good economics? Um, an economist once said to me that if you flew an airplane and dropped a billion dollars on a city, and let people just pick up the money and spend it, it would actually do more for your local economy than paying for one of these palaces. See, what these palaces are is it's, it's classic trickle-up economics in that it's 
a public expenditure, but the money magically morphs into private profit for the few. And for the many, you have short-term jobs in construction. And then people say, well, what about stadium and arena jobs? Well, those jobs only exist if something's happening at the stadium or arena. So think about that. Like if there's no game, nobody's going to work, nobody's getting paid. These aren't salaried employees. So the system itself doesn't work. I mean, I, I view it very much as something that has, I call it like a neoliberal Trojan horse in that we don't, it comes wrapped in this clothing of sports and who doesn't love sports and yet inside it there's a poison pill for the economy of your city it aids gentrification it hurts the local neighborhoods where the stadiums are put in in terms of local businesses i've seen this in dc very clearly they get you know our chinatown became went from being an actual chinatown uh to being a place where you have a starbucks with chinese lettering underneath a CVS with Chinese lettering underneath, a Chipotle with Chinese lettering underneath. So you get like the, the big box stores uh, that come in because they're the only ones that can now afford the rents or even more nefarious, they do the construction projects so big, no one can get to the local stores. And so then they shut down, which is which they're only more than happy with um, at the stadium themselves. And so there are best and worst examples i mean of public funding of stadiums sometimes there's less public funding sometimes there's more but no matter how much goes into it i would argue that it's a sunken cost and it hurts the cities terribly and you know when you've got libraries and schools that are underfunded i don't see how morally one can make the case that this is going to be good for the economy of a city the i mean you know, it's so funny. This used to be a debate I would get into. I got in debates on this on NPR, like big public radio debates about the public funding of stadium stadiums. I don't, and usually they would happen these debates before a key referendum in a city. And we would use the referendum, like will people vote for public expenditure for a stadium? And I'll never, Rudolph Giuliani once said when they built the new Yankee stadium and Mets stadium, uh, you know, City Field, named after Citibank, uh, said, um, well, you can't have referendum for these projects because he didn't. He said, because then people wouldn't vote for it. And but but to go back to the debate, I used to get in these debates all the time. And I don't get asked to be in these debates anymore because it's not really a debatable point at this point. I mean, there's so much academic data at this point about what is the economic impact of these stadiums that shows that it, it does not fulfill the promises that the you know that the monorail salesmen's of these stadiums purport to try to sell to the city that uh, that you can't debate it all they can do is ram it through with the hope that people love sports so much they'll overlook the fact that they're getting hosed and i'll say something else too because this has come up a lot through the pandemic um if you notice this is true where i am the stadiums become the place where people are getting their vaccines. And yeah. to me, and, and, and also stadiums in many cities were places that were so to cut the lines for voting uh, in the last election. And it just says so much that we don't have public facilities where we can have a mass vaccination center or where people can vote quickly and easily and safely, even during a pandemic. It's like we have to use these structures now uh, because precisely because uh, 
public expenditure and public facilities don't exist in the same way. I wrote about this after Hurricane Katrina when the New Orleans Superdome, which was built on public money, uh, all of a sudden becomes the homeless shelter of last resort uh, for, for the people who had been pushed out of their homes because of the breaking of the levees. It just reveals so much about the underbelly of this country and how much of our public infrastructure is broken. And hey, you, you mentioned the Twin Cities. You also could have mentioned, and I certainly like to mention and remember the bridge collapsing there, right? You know, right around the same time they opened up the billion dollar new field for, this, for the Minnesota Twins. I mean, this is a question of priorities and they've shown which side they're on. And they're often bipartisan too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, well, you mentioned uh, um, earlier in this interview that you were a history major and yes, we love history majors around here. We love history majors here on All of the Above. And you also, well, an unnamed source told me that you actually were a teacher for, for some years before um, becoming a, a sports writer. And I think I think we could all agree that the there are a lot of parallels between how we uh, think about education, and how we think about sports. You know, a lot of folks out there think both of them are supposed to be quote unquote apolitical, and you know, keep politics out of schools, keep politics out of sports. And we're wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your your journey into sports writing and and the, um, the journey you've taken in in looking at sports through the lens of of social justice. I mean, I grew up an incredible sports fan in New York City. I love sports so much. Uh, my room was like a shrine to the stars of the day. People like uh, Dwight Gooden, Keith Hernandez, Lawrence Taylor. Um, I didn't know at the time all those guys had serious drug problems, but you know, back then there was less knowing about the athletes themselves. But I like to say that my room growing up was like the Tony Montana All-Stars, like just maybe that's not funny but i always i always thought of that like yeah that's funny all my heroes were in part of cocaine scandals that's really interesting um but i you know i grew up this big sports fan ne never you know and i was like memorizing statistics and the whole thing and it was it was my life trivia and i never thought about the politics of sports and didn't even know about the political history of sports and i got really into history and politics um as as a student in college and never really, and I actually spent most of my college years not really thinking too much about sports. Uh, but then, you know, I sort of thought about it like, well, you know, no longer a child, I'm putting away childish things. I thought of sports as a childish thing. And that changed for me very dramatically when Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, a basketball player for the Denver Nuggets, made the decision to not stand for the anthem. And I've interviewed Raouf. I think it's fascinating that. When he chose not to stand, all the media coverage was, well, his name was Chris Jackson and he converted to Islam and that's why he doesn't want to stand. Muslims are traitors, all this stuff. You know, like there, there were hate crimes against mosques in Denver where he played after he did this. But I interviewed him and it's so funny that the reason why he didn't stand had far less to do with Islam and far more to do with he was reading Noam Chomsky you know, the irony, the, a, a Jewish <laughs> thinker. And, and it was Chomsky that had him thinking about US foreign policy. And why, and that was why he didn't want to stand for the flag. And he was drummed out of the sport. And I'll never forget watching news footage about it and having the, uh, the announcers say, well, Raouf must see himself as being part of that tradition of activist athletes like Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Billie Jean King. And I'd never thought of act, what, what's an activist athlete? I had no idea. And so I, I started to do my historical research and 
you know, it wasn't like today where, you know, I'm going to sound old, but I couldn't just Google athlete activists or something like that. I had to really dig. I had to read a lot and I had to read a lot of sports autobiographies because that's where you saw a lot of it. But there wasn't really a book that was like, here's your history of athlete activism, which was actually the inspiration for writing a people's history of sports in the United States. Like I wanted to have that book for the person who might be like me, you know, wondering what this was all about. So I started to care a lot about sports and politics. I read also an amazing book. Like one of the things too is like when I started reading a lot about sports and politics in college, a lot of it also was found in like very dense academic sociological reading that I frankly had a tough time reading. I mean, I grew up on sports writing and I had a lot of trouble with the, the thick academic writing. And a lot of it was, was steeped in postmodernism, which I found impenetrable. So it, it, it was difficult for me. Um, but then I found a book called Redemption Song, Muhammad Ali and the Spirit of the 60s by a great author named Mike Marcusy. And reading about Ali and reading Marcusy's prose, which was very like zippy, I was like, wow, I want to do some writing like this. This was cool. So it was always a dream in my head. Like, wouldn't it be cool to be a political sports writer and write about the issues of the day? Um, and while I was trying to think through how I was actually going to do that, I did work as a third grade teacher here in Washington, DC. And it was the most beautiful experience. Like, I could have done it forever. I love teaching kids. I absolutely loved it. Um, I actually um, just had a former student and I, I can't even say how old she is. She's gotta be pushing 30 at this point. And she sent me a little note on, uh, on Facebook and it meant like so much to me because I taught her when she was eight years old, you know? And so those kinds of connections, I think you only get through teaching. But one of the things that through my sporting lens that I saw at my school was that there was no gym. There was no PE. There was no physical education cut from the budget. And so oh, they had recess in this little concrete playground next to the school. But I found myself, you know, that's usually the time where you just sort of kick back and make sure kids aren't getting into trouble. I found myself organizing games for the kids because I wanted them to actually learn that experience of teamwork and helping people up when they fall down, you know, the best angels of sports, not the worst hyper competitive BS, but the, the, the best part of sports. And, you know, that, that just got me thinking a lot about like, wow, sports needs to be more of a positive role in the lives of these young people. So teaching had, had a huge influence on me in terms of wanting to do this work. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like, like, like I like to say, you know, it also, made a difference that my wife-to-be was teaching high school history and we were just having some trouble with both of us being teachers and bringing you know the pressure of being a teacher back to the house so I said I'm gonna try to get it I never went to journalism school and I just said let me see if I can get a job on a newspaper and maybe learn that way and I got very lucky I got a job on a newspaper you know I'd had enough clips from doing writing in college and whatnot um, but, I, but my school McAllister didn't even have a journalism major so I, but I got into it through learning it, which is very old school. Like nowadays, it's like you go to journalism school or you're in a lot of trouble, you know, but back then, and I say back then, God, I sound old, but back then you could <laughs> still get a job at a newspaper and learn the trade in an old school way, almost like you're a, uh, an apprentice to an older journalist and you learn how to write on deadline and you learn how to do interviews. And, you know, so that's really how I got started. I, um, asked my boss at the newspaper, like, hey, you know, like, I don't care what you make me do here. I'll sweep the floors. Keep in mind, I didn't have kids yet. So I had the luxury of doing this. I said, I'll do anything. I'll sell ads. 
but I would love to have just a small space in the paper where I can write a column about the politics of sports so I can build up a portfolio for doing that. And he said, yes. And so that's how I really got started. Then my, my brother-in-law started putting the columns online, uh, which was a total mystery to me at the time. And that's how I got to know the nation. And I, I've been there ever since. So, so that, that, that's kind of the, I'm sorry if I went long, but that's kind of the long story of the journey. And, um, yeah, it, it's such a different landscape now. And I get asked all the time, like, what advice do you have for young sports journalists? And it's really hard to give advice because the landscape is so different from when I come up. And the main thing I say to them is, and I'm sure you, you, you fellas can definitely relate to this. And I said, you got to be like a Swiss army knife. It's like, it's not enough anymore to know how to write. You got to know how to speak. You got to know how to do a podcast. You got to know how to do um, uh, online Zoom interviews and things like that. Like there's so much more you need to know and so many more skills you need to have than when I was starting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dave, really appreciate um, your thoughts and perspective on today's conversation. Um, and, you know, as a, as a person who's been an admirer of your work for, for many years now, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an important kind of role to fill, I think, in our, in our national discourse around seeing the connections between these things that we love uh, in the form of sports and athletics and school and also the issues that we care about in society, right? And um, how to bring some alignment, hopefully, between those two things. So um, Dave Zirin, thank you so much for being here with us today. And before you go, um, uh, would you like to share with folks uh, if they you know, liked what they heard today, where can they follow you or learn more about your, um, your work and your writing? I'm most available on Twitter, uh, at Edge of Sports. People can reach me there. My DMs are always open, sometimes to my detriment, but it allowed me to connect with, with you guys. So, I mean, I, I love having my DMs open, even if it's sometimes a shit show, because, you know, you, you do get to meet folks. So that's the best way to get in touch. Okay. And it's, uh, you're at Edge of Sports on Twitter? Yes, sir. All right. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you, Dave Zirin, for joining us. Uh, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Next up is our Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, thanks for watching all the above. We really appreciate you, and we need your help. We're trying to get the word out about all the above to everyone. Here's what you can do. Go to aotashow.com, that's our website, all the links to all of our content is there. You can share our stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Send the links to friends, colleagues, educators you know who could benefit from this type of show. Help us spread the word about all the above. Thanks. Enjoy the show. All right, folks, we have reached that part of the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. This is our class dismissed. Jeff, who do we have today? Well, Manuel, today we actually got a whole bunch of people and it's a whole bunch of young people, in particular, high school students across the state of Minnesota who in mid-April held uh, a series of walkouts and protests in response to the, uh, the murder of Dante Wright by Brooklyn Center police officers. Um, now, we saw, you know, you might expect, I guess I should say, that local high schools in Minneapolis and St. Paul or in the, you know, in the Twin Cities metro area 
might have been very engaged in um, in this story, and they certainly were, right? Holding these walkouts, um, I believe the walkouts started at 1.47 p.m. with a you know a moment of silence um, in honor of Dante Wright. That was the time that he was um, he was murdered. But um, part of what I think helped raise this story to something we really wanted to shout out today is that. It was high school students from across the entire state, from small, you know, uh, small towns, rural parts of the state, more agricultural communities, where we saw um, high school students organizing and taking part. And even if it was, you know, just ten students, or you know, twenty students, or hundreds of students um, for larger schools. Uh, the fact that students are engaging, using the tools and the platform that they have to, you know, make their their voices heard about this and speak out against this type of injustice that seems not only to continue to happen in their own state but continue to happen across the country, um, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And I think, um, especially in a context, um, Manuel, where we've been you know, socially distanced and isolated and that sort of thing to see young people kind of rekindling the frame, the flames of protest and speaking out against power, um, I think is a, is a beautiful thing. And so, um, you know, youth, youth organizing for the, for the win yet again on this one, um, definitely just want to give some props to, um, to the high school students in the state of Minnesota. And there's probably others elsewhere around the country, but this, this one really just, just caught our attention. So props to you, hats off high school students in the state of Minnesota for, for taking a stand in honor of Dante Wright. Absolutely. We love to see that. Absolutely. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. As always, please, 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 if you haven't already, please consider giving us that five-star review in your podcast streaming app or that thumbs up if you're watching us on YouTube. That goes a long way to support our, our two-person operation here. And you can catch all of our previous episodes at our website, aotashow.com. All right, folks, we'll see you next time.